2 Samuel chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David set out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you should send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David and the loss there was great on that day. 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Well, this ends the long, essentially, account of Absalom's conspiracy and overthrow of David. Several chapters in 2 Samuel are devoted to essentially the fall, the exile, the return, and then the conspiracy of Absalom. And it ends tragically here in this passage in his death. But in the midst of this tragedy, what you see happening is God is restoring David. That it's a process of restoration. David's been on the run. David's had to flee his city. And here in the context of this tragedy and this sad death of David's son, you see his restoration. You also see here the effects, the ravages of sin. Because essentially this is all happening as a consequence of David's sin. But David's not the only sinner here. Absalom is a traitor, a treacherous man who meets his end in tragedy. 
at the hands of, a, of a, essentially a villain named Joab. There's a lot of depravity in this passage, but in the midst of it, and in the midst of the tragedy, God is restoring David to the place that God has set him up. And that's where we begin in, in verse 1, where essentially we see David returning to faithfulness. We essentially see for the first time now in many chapters of 2 Samuel, David kind of back to his old form. Uh, ever since David's sin with Bathsheba and the consequences that followed, you, you read about David and you're like, my goodness, this seems to be a totally different man. And it's as if he was. Until you come to chapter 18 and verse 1, and now it seems like David is essentially acting like a king, one who's trusted with this high position of authority, is acting. Look at chapter 18, 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. Keep in mind how this whole dark, sad course of events, what led to it, how it began in its unfolding back in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Here's how this transition begins, 2 Samuel 11:1. 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba, but David remained at Bathsheba. David was in a place where he shouldn't have been. He wasn't exercising his responsibility as king, and thus he is on a rooftop looking at Bathsheba, which likely was planned and premeditated, possibly at least. But the point there and the way the, the, the chapter is introduced is David was not carrying out his kingly duty. But here now, after a long, sad trail of tears and death, chapter 18.1 begins with David essentially back to faithfulness, carrying out his responsibilities, organizing the army. Look what it says in verse 2. David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, one-third under the command of Yatai the Gittite. So, so David here is again sending them out, and he offers to go with them himself. You see here a return to faithfulness, this organization of the army. And, and essentially these three men that are featured are proven warriors, in contrast to the guy that Absalom has leading his army, uh, essentially an unproven man. David has seasoned veteran warriors split into three groups leading his army. But again, I think what you see here is even though David has fallen and even though David is bearing the consequences of his sins, what does he do? He returns to faithfulness. He, he's, he's back to doing what he's supposed to do. Look at Proverbs 24, 16. It provides a good picture of what a righteous, faithful man does. Proverbs 24, 16. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. That'd be a good theme for this chapter. Here you see David, who's a man of God, though he's fallen and sinned, repented, yes, but bearing the consequences of, of his sin, what does he do? He gets back up. He gets back up. He's returning here now to his old form of living a faithful life. All of us should learn by this. We need to just get back to faithful obedience after we've committed sin and repented. Part of the reality of sin is you deal with its consequences. Well, get back up into the Christian fight. 
Get back to faithfully doing what God's called you to do. Get back to making disciples. My goodness, get back to church. There are so many that sin and deal with the consequences of sin and then essentially quit worshiping with God's people because of what they're going through or what they've gone through or they just don't feel like they can go back. Be like John Mark. John Mark is this young man who is part of essentially what becomes one of the first missions efforts of the, of the early church. There's, there's Paul, there's Barnabas, and there's John Mark. They begin this journey to the nations to proclaim the gospel and spread the gospel to the nations like Jesus said the gospel would spread. And John Mark evidently bails, quits, and, and makes such an impression that Paul refuses to go with him later. And essentially, this, this causes a division between Paul and Barnabas later on. But you clearly have an example of John Mark bailing, and I think failing, in his responsibility to God. But by the time Paul the Apostle writes his last letter, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul the Apostle says John Mark is useful to him. Now this is what we all need to get get through and two, we need to get from falling back to usefulness. Because falling is part of the Christian life. But what do you do after you fall? You repent and you get back to usefulness. Where are you at in that cycle? Have you repented? Are you being useful? Well, we see faithfulness returning to the life of David, even though he's failed. Not only does, does he return to faithfulness, he also returns to humility. Uh, essentially, David wants to go out with the, the, the army. That's his place. But in this particular case, his generals advise him that wouldn't be wise in this case because they're just going to want to kill you, and if they kill you, they're going to get the victory that they want. So in, in this case, David recognizes the wisdom in that. And in verse 4, notice, the king said to them, by the way, being king means you get to do what you want to do. You're an absolute authority. But in this case, the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. Well, you see here what you have. You have the example of a humble king who actually listens to his counselors. David is re returning to a form of faithfulness. One of the things you see all through this account, particularly in 2 Samuel 17, and here at the beginning of 18, is an emphasis on the loyal friends of David. That when David has to flee, whenever he has to run away from Absalom, he leaves Jerusalem. Uh, essentially, you see some people go with him. Faithful friends that have been with him a long time. At the end of chapter 17, you see some unexpected friends show up with provision. But, but there's this emphasis on the friends of David who continue to care for him and uphold him and help him even though he's down, which obviously is a great example to Christians. When people are down, when other Christians are down, we want to help them. David meets with great loyal friends even when he's at his weakest. And yet he listens to them. He listens to them. He, he, he heeds the counsel of others. He listens to them. This is one of the things that marked the, the ministry of Billy Graham. You understand, Billy Graham at a time in his life was maybe the most famous person on earth, meaning 
more people around the world recognize Billy Graham probably than any other human. They'd be like Billy Graham, Michael Jordan, and Muhammad Ali, probably the most recognizable people at that period in history. Billy Graham's one of them. Um, and, and Billy Graham listened to his counselors. He, he had around him godly men, and he would seek their counsel and he would listen to them. Because, you know, one of the things that, that was characteristic about Billy Graham was he would always do, give these invitations at the end of his crusade. And he'd have this music playing, right? George Beverly Shea would get up and sing, and they would, you know, call people to come down in this invitation. And that's essentially just how he did what he did. Well, he found out that, you know, in Europe, if you go into certain places in Europe and try that, the people are going to not respond well. Because in some places in Europe, in their mind, the playing of music is manipulation. So you know what Billy Graham did? In his Paris crusade, he cut out the invitation. Which, which again, this is kind of like his signature move. But he cut it out because his counselors told him, you know, the French people, if, if you try this here, they're just going to think you're manipulating them and they're going to totally write you off. But a wise leader listens to counsel. And in fact, it's dangerous not to listen to others. Look at Proverbs 24, 5 and 6. Proverbs 24, 5 and 6. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. So there's a return to faithfulness, there's a return to humility. But there's also what I, what I think is the overarching theme of this whole section is the fact that we need to recognize the consequences of sin. That, that's really the, the big thing this is trying to show us. David sinned, sinned against God, and he's dealing with the consequences. And because of the, the high level of responsibility he was trusted with, the price of his sin is going to be really, really high. Pick it up in verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day. It's terrible, isn't it? These are the, these are the tragic consequences of David's sin. 20,000 men. It's like a, this is essentially an Israelite civil war. A civil war between the traitor Absalom and most of Israel and then the servants of David. And there's 20,000 dead because of it. Verse 8, the battle spread over the face of all the country and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. How odd, how sad. Again, you're there to fight, you're there to, for battle and you're just running along and you fall in a pit and break your neck. <laughs> what a tragedy. Those are the kind of things that happened that day. And essentially it's Israel's distress. There's, these are, this just shouldn't be. This just shouldn't be. And the reality of it is, is that our sins are very costly. That, that we, there are consequences for our sins. Our sins bring about a painful effect in and on our life. So as Christians, we must not think that we can just sin indiscriminately and not pay a price for it. You will pay a price. You will. 
In fact, we as Christians need to rewire how we think about sin. That sin, it will bring us pain. Uh, see, this is where sin is so deceitful. Sin promises pleasure and satisfaction, but it delivers pain and suffering. That's why it's deceitful. It promises one thing, but it delivers another. And it'd be wise if we could learn this. Haven't we all lived it and experienced it? To, to, to do and to choose what we know is wrong. And then to deal with the discipline and consequences that come later. We, we've got to say no to sin. And, and why do you think you have so many chapters? More than half of the book of 2 Samuel essentially traces the consequences of David's sin. Why so much literature about David paying the price and the high price for the sin he committed? It starts with the loss of his baby. It continues with the murder of one of his sons. And then it's going to continue here with the death of another one of his sons, who's a traitor. It's because of David's sins. It's a sobering warning. It's a sobering warning. It also shows us that our sins affect others. And again, David, who's a man with great responsibility, because of the, 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 the height of his responsibility, it's going to affect more people. We don't sin in a vacuum. We don't sin in a vacuum. This is why when the prodigal son repents, he says, I have sinned against you and against heaven. He recognized he sinned against the kingdom of God and God's holy kingdom, but he's also sinned against his father. When we sin, we don't sin in a vacuum. It affects other people. And it's particularly sobering for leaders because the sins of leaders affects the people that they lead. Let me just give you some examples. One of the clearest examples is in 1 Kings 15. It's, it's the evil king Jeroboam. Look at, look at how the historian of 1 Kings records the effects of Jeroboam and his kingship. 1 Kings 15, 29 to 30. And as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. This is the person who followed him. He left the house of Jeroboam, no one that breathed until he had destroyed it. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah, the Shulamite. It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned, and that he made Israel to sin. And because of the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. Notice that little phrase. It's the sins of Jeroboam and now, I'm sorry, the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned and that he made Israel to sin. You see, the effects of a leader on the people. And, and essentially, this is how Jeroboam is going to be known throughout the history of kings. He's the king who made Israel to sin. Just one more example, 1 Kings 16, 25 and 26. So the very next chapter, again, you'll find it all through the book. Amri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. That the, the, these sins affect other people. They affect other people. That's Israel's disobedience. Look at Joab's disobedience. And essentially the, the treachery of Joab is highlighted in this section. That it's clear to everyone while the army's marching out, the orders of the king are clear. 
And they're, they're clear to everyone. Deal kindly with Absalom. Uh, essentially, give him grace. And this, uh, essentially, you find Absalom hanging in a tree. The soldier finds him and reports to Joab, we found Absalom. And Joab's astounded. Why didn't you kill him? Don't you know I would have given you 10 pieces of silver and a belt? My goodness, a, a new belt for killing this, this, the king's son. And the, here you see the, the soldier, who's, I think, unnamed, is more righteous than Joab. It's like, my goodness, I, I, I heard the king's command. And, and in fact, so did everybody. We know what the king said. And it, it's not worth a thousand pieces of silver to, to reach my hand out against the king's son and kill him. So Joab takes matters into his own hands. And again, it, the, the text makes explicitly clear Joab is rebelling against the king's command. Look what, hap look what happens. Verse 14. So, so the, the, the soldier who's seemingly more righteous who refuses to do the deed, Joab said in verse 14, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. So jo Joab does the deed, or at least leads in it. And the, the text is a little, I think, intentionally vague because it goes on to say, And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So maybe Joab was just toying with him, right? This is what a villain would do. It's like a cat playing with a mouse. Hard to know, but ultimately he dies and Joab rebels against the king's command. Whenever you do that, it's wrong and it's not going to end well. But one of, the, one of the little conundrums of this passage, and I'm just going to mention it and you can think about it on your own, <laughs> is... <clears throat> What Joab does is wrong, but it sure seems rational. Seems rational at this point in war to kill Absalom. Why? Well, what has Absalom proven himself to be thus far? Over and over again, my goodness, Absalom has proven himself to be a traitor. And incidentally, back in chapter 14, Joab's the reason Absalom's brought back to Jerusalem and out of exile. Absalom killed his brother, one of David's sons. Absalom goes into exile. Joab is the reason that gets him back. And in that chapter, I believe in 2 Samuel 14, you find the word crafty repeated. So, so Joab uses crafty means to bring Absalom back. In, in the course of these events, Absalom is going to burn one of Joab's fields, which the public is not going to happen. Certainly not going to But Joab is the reason he's back. Ultimately going to lead to Absalom capturing the hearts of the people, committing conspiracy and treachery, usurping the king, taking over Jerusalem, committing depraved acts. So, I mean, from a human standpoint, it makes sense to kill this guy on the battlefield. This is what you do if you're a guy like Joab. But friends, the king's command is clear. The king's command is clear. And incidentally, by the time you get to the end of Joab's life, he is going to reap what he sows. He's proven himself to be a villain and a man of blood, and that's only going to continue. So we see here highlighted Joab's disobedience, all in the context 
of David's sin. And then we see Absalom's death. Let's, let's look at this for, for a few minutes. First of, all, uh, first of all, you see how Absalom meets with this embarrassing end. That, pick it up in verse 9. Absalom happened, by the way, I think that's tongue-in-cheek. I think that's essentially the way the author is saying this is not just a coincidence. <laughs> I think it's worded that way, uh, again, to be tongue-in-cheek. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. It doesn't give you all the details, but it gives you the result. Maybe the servants of David are trailing him, and, and he's on his mule, and he looks behind him, and while he's looking behind him, he hits a, a low-hanging limb with his head. We don't know. But the result is that, verse 9 his head was caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. A couple things about this. First of all, the way Absalom is, is discussed in this account of his treachery, one of the reasons why he was able to win over the hearts of people is because he was a beautiful man. He was known for his beautiful hair. And now you essentially see some, some irony here in the fact that what was emphasized in his appearance has, is going to lead to his downfall. Where his head is caught fast by his hair in this tree and he's suspended between heaven and earth. He is hung on a tree. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23 makes it very clear that those who are hung on a tree are cursed by God. They're cursed by God. So let's see what happens. We saw what happened with Joab. Look at verse 16. Here's the conclusion. Joab blew the trumpet. The troops came back from pursuing Israel, and Joab restrained them. They took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled everyone to his home. Well, there, there's the end of Absalom's rebellion. Laying in a pit covered by a heap of stones. This is a king's son, a prince of Israel. Carcass, probably mangled to death from what you read in the, the evidence of the text. I mean, he's taken three javelins to the heart and then the young men surrounded him and, and struck him and killed him. Thrown in a pit, heap of stones raised over him. All Israel now flees. What a sad end. And it's even more sad if you understand it in the context of the Old Testament. Let me give you just a little bit of a, a picture of what's going on. Joshua chapter 7, you meet another traitor. His name is Achan. Uh, another essentially battlefield story where you have this traitor uncovered who's essentially transgressed the word of God. Joshua chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they rose, raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Well, there's Achan, one of the early traitors in the history of Israel. What happens? A heap of stones is raised over his body. In the next chapter, Joshua chapter 8. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones. 
which stands there to this day. And then you find the traitor Absalom. And what do they do? What do they, why do they do this? Well, this is how they treated traitors. It's not a pretty end. There's one last thing about Absalom the passage relates. Look at it in verse 18. Essentially, the sadness and the tragedy of this just continues. It's a haunting reminder of the consequences of sin. Verse 18. Now, Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. So, again, there's more sad irony. You might even say dark irony here. What you have in this text is you have two monuments. One monument that marks the final resting place of a traitor like Achan. And like the enemy of Israel, the king of Ai. An infamous man in Israel's history. Absalom's going down in history like them. But then you have what Absalom had intended. He wanted a monument for himself so that his name could be known and continue. Well, that's not, what, that's not how it worked out for him. That monument may be raised in the Valley of the Kings, but guess what his end is? It's a heap of stones like Achan and like the king of Ai. You see, Absalom is also an example of, of one who's paying a, a high price of the consequence of sin. I mean, for instance, I mean, I don't know about you. One of the things that's, that's uh, ingrained in my mind from my childhood <laughs> is my mom reminding me. Because, by the way, I was, I was not a good kid growing up. One of the things my mom always said to me was, honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment with a promise. That's a good reminder. You know what the promise is? So that it will go well with you, so that your days may be long. That's significant. And what's it tied to? It's tied to honoring father and mother. Well, what happens to Absalom? He's a traitor. He's a traitor. And he dies the death of a traitor, an enemy. And it's a tragedy. It's not how he wanted his name to go down in history. But it is what, how his name goes down in history because of his sin. It's a sobering reminder. One last point to kind of wrap this thing up. And the point is this. Endure the Lord's discipline. That's what you see in the case of David. Persevere in the faith. Because you see, what, the way this, this fits in, in the bigger context is God is bringing David back. God is bringing David back. Isn't it a great consolation? Those of us who are sons of God, the children of God, that even though we fall in sin, God is going to bring us back. And he does. But what a cost. What a price David has to pay. 20,000 Israelites and his own son, dead. But persevere in the faith. Endure the Lord's discipline. This is how God gets his people back on the path of faithfulness. The scripture says the Lord disciplines us as sons. How do you discipline a son? You do it for their good. To protect them from dangerous things and foolish decisions. 
The Lord loves us as sons. That's why he disciplines us as sons. The Lord Jesus says, I rebuke and chasten those whom I love. He rebukes and chastens those he loves. He doesn't just affirmingly turn his head and look the other direction when we sin. No, he brings the rod. And the rod is painful. But in the grand scheme of things, it's about getting us back on the right path. And the reality from the, the biblical standpoint is, God is more concerned about our perseverance in the faith than he is about our peace in this life and this world. You're not going to always have peace in this world or in this life. And, and God is more concerned with our being faithful than our comfort. David is not real comfortable at this point in his life. And God is going to use the tool of pain to bring David back to where David needs to be. It starts in chapter 11. And here you see finally David coming back to faithfulness. But it is a horrible, costly path. So how do you respond or how will you respond to the Lord's discipline? So many people, when they deal with the discipline of God because of their sins, and, and the reality is in the experience of life, it's hard to know. It's hard to know, am I being disciplined? You, a lot of times, you're just not going to know that. But the bottom line is, how do you respond to adverse circumstances? A lot of people, you know what it does to them? It just hardens them. It just causes them to get bitter. It causes some to turn away from the faith. This is not what we see from David. Even though as a result of his sin, 20,000 die. Let alone three of his children. Three sons dead because of his sin. 20,000 Israelites dead because of his sin. It's a tragedy. A lot of people just go further down the spiral of depravity. Well, I've already done this. I might as well do more, right? Might as well just join them. Friends, don't think like that. Don't think like that. Repent while there's opportunity. Be faithful to the Lord. Endure his discipline. And whatever you've done or wherever you're at in life, just determine from this moment on, I'm going to be faithful. By the grace of God, I'm going to live out his word. I've fallen, but I'm going to get back up and be faithful for the rest of my days. I'm going to try to learn from my mistakes. I'm not going to continue on in unrepentant sin. I'm not going to continue sinning as if nothing is going to happen as a consequence. I'm going to be faithful to God from this day forward. I'm going to learn from this example of David, this tragic, sobering example. That's why we have this here for our instruction. One last example and we'll pray. <laughs> this, this whole deal of David and the discipline and his repentance and his perseverance reminded me of Samuel. I'm, not, I'm sorry, it's not Samuel, Samson. There's some parallels here with Samson. Where Samson's used in amazing ways by God to carry out God's will in the work of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. By, by the way, the story's not about Samson's long hair. It's about him being empowered by the Spirit of God. That's, that's, that's where his power comes from. It's from, from God. And, and in, in Samson, you see, despite the fact that he's used by God in amazing ways, he is sadly immoral. And essentially, you, you see what his perpetual sins bring about in his life. I mean, the, the final scenes of Samson, his eyes have been gouged out by his enemies. 
And here is one of the greatest warriors in history, chained like an animal, treated like an animal, because of his sin. It's a graphic picture like this one. A leader who's a great warrior who ends his life like a cursed blind animal. But I believe he's repentant at the end when essentially they're making a, a show out of him. They've kind of brought him into their equivalent of the Colosseum. And they're gathered all there and for them he's a big joke. He's a tribute to the power of their gods. And he prays one last time to God for strength. God grants him strength and in his death he kills more Philistines than he ever killed in his life. But what a cost. What a cost because of the wages of sin. Let's pray together. Lord, I just pray we'd be warned by the examples of David, that God would be encouraged by David's example to persevere, to repent, to recognize your discipline brings us back to the path of faithfulness that you would have us walk on. We'd be sobered by the sad example and tragic end of Absalom, that God, we would honor our father and mother, recognizing it's the first commandment with a promise. And God, that we would be faithful to you from this day forward. Please stir us, empower us, encourage us, Lord, to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Friends, the, the pressing need of all of us is forgiveness before a holy God. And the good news is through Jesus that's provided by God. What we need comes from God and what we need is provided by God. That God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. He died as a sacrifice. He took the punishment we deserve, paid the price, and then he was raised up from the dead to prove that he is the Son of God, that he is Lord of Lords, that he is exalted. He's our Lord and he's our God. So we were to repent of our sins and trust in Jesus. That Jesus taught, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So we recognize our access to God comes through Jesus. So repent of your sin which ultimately condemns you before God or in the Christian life your sin will cause you pain so repent and go and sin no more